This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychology. I am Eugenio Duarte, your host, as well as a practicing psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. Today, my guest is Galit Atlas, author of the new book, Emotional Inheritance, A Therapist, Her Patients, and the Legacy of Trauma, published in, by Little Brown Spark and coming out next year in 2022. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my guest today. Galit Atlas is a psychoanalyst and clinical supervisor in private practice in New York City. She's a faculty member of the New York University postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. She's a faculty member of the National Training Program and the four-year adult training program of the National Institute for the Psychotherapies in New York City. Dr. Atlas has published three books for clinicians and numerous articles and book chapters that focus primarily on gender and sexuality. Her New York Times publication, The Tale of Two Twins, was the winner of a 2016 Gradiva Award. A leader in the field of relational psychoanalysis, Dr. Atlas is a recipient of the André Francois Award and the NADTA Research Award. She teaches and lectures throughout the United States and internationally. Galit, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am very honored to be here today. And we're very excited to have you. Uh, first, congratulations on your book, which comes out on January 25th of next year. As the date approaches, how are you feeling? I'm feeling very excited as well as uh, anxious, <laughs> I have to say. Uh, this is a book I've been working on for the last um, almost three years and uh, so there's a lot in me of me in this book uh, as you probably noticed reading reading it and so there, there is a lot of excitement about it what does it feel like once the book is out there oh that's a good question i i don't know that i have the answer for that because i feel like sometimes it doesn't feel it doesn't feel anything, you know. It feels like, you know, these one of you know when you publish an article, and most of the times the article is out, and you think to yourself, 
maybe nobody actually read it. Or where there's something about that that doesn't feel like you feel like, or on your birthday, you feel like it's supposed to be something different, but it isn't actually. So I think that's what I predict will happen in the publication that maybe, maybe I'll get a, a, a flowers from my publisher. That would be nice. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah. you, I did notice that you dedicate the book to the memory of Lewis Aaron and, and he's, um, he's written about in the book. How did he contribute to this book coming to fruition? Mm, that's a, you know, I dedicated the book to Lou, who was my life partner for many, many, many years. And we raised our families together. And we, and I also have a chapter, I think at least one chapter in the book, because the book is very personal, as I mentioned. So there's a lot of me in it. And there is one chapter when that talks about loss that I mentioned my process with a patient and what I had in the back of my mind and, and Lou's illness while she's talking about her friend's illness. And Lou was actually, I wrote most of the book after his death. And I, but the, I wrote the proposal uh, in the last few months of his life. And so he was very involved in any, even in when he was in bed in what I was doing, what I'm planning to do, what this book, right, the table of content and what I was, uh, you know, my, my vision for this book. And of course, as always, and anyone who knows Lou and knew, knew Lou and knows that he was the most supportive person. And so he was like that with anyone, everyone, and of course with me as well. Very supportive. Uh, the only other thing I want to say is that there are three pieces in this book, three chapters that are based on pieces I wrote for the New York Times. And so those pieces, obviously, Lou was involved in and knew about and read before I sent it and all of that. was uh, So that's part of it as well. What would you say this book is about? This book is about, well, no, the book is called Emotional Inheritance, right? I think for us therapists or psychoanalysts especially, we're very familiar with the concept of intergenerational transmission of trauma. And a lot of this book is about trauma, and but not the transmission of emotional material, right? The book is, is, um, has three parts. The first part, really, for, it's called, I think, uh, Our Grandparents. And uh, it is about the, the third generation, the third generation of transmission, the way grandparents' known and unknown experiences live in their grandchild's mind and how it is related. And, and I think there are many interesting, uh, it's a book of stories, you know, it's not just a book of theory. So there are a lot of narratives of how a child lives with something that happened many years ago that they did not experience, that they don't, sometimes don't even know about. And how does that live inside their mind? The second part is about parents and child relationship. A lot of it is related to attachment and again, slight, slight touch of theory, but a lot of it is through narratives. 
talking about secrets and the way those emotional experiences and secrets are transmitted from generation to generation or felt by the child, secrets that the parents never talked about, never from before the child was born often, or when the child was very young and cannot remember. The third uh, section of the book is, uh, I think it's called Secrets We Keep From Ourselves, but I'm not, I'm not sure, I don't remember the, the names of the sections. Uh, and it is about, much more about what we transmit to the next generation and how do we manage our own secrets and our own traumas. How, how did you come to be interested in, in the topic of intergenerational trauma? Was it through your clinical work? Was it through personal experience? You know, the truth is that the, this book originally was not supposed to be on intergenerational trauma. It was supposed, I was much more interested in um, all of those uh, experiences, right? Secrets and experiences that we know and feel. Some of them are traumas, of course. Many times those secrets are traumas uh, that we are aware of or not aware of, but that we, we respond to as children and grown up things that our parents and grandparents carry. And so originally, I think that was my interest. And the first piece I wrote was um, a story. That was my first New York Times um, story, New York Times, uh, a story about a guy named Noah. I, I call it the Noah story. I, I was hoping you would it. talk about Noah. <laughs> right. Noah, a, a patient that comes to therapy because of his obsession about the dead right and we start analyzing that and he's very obsessed with obituaries which i could identify with not to that extent but i feel like there is something about looking at obituaries for him was about like what is it who are these people what did they die from he would google their names think about right who are they and and find who their spouses were and what did they do and create a whole picture of a life of that person and of course, in the chapter, I, I talk about it a little more and about how we understood it and what we thought about it. But at some point, he's saying that he, he always had this bizarre thoughts about these bizarre thoughts about death that his parents, especially his mother, was very impatient about and thought that it was annoying that he's like that. And, the, and one of those ideas was that he, he was a twin. And that he and his twin brother died, and he used to. And we joke about it that he they were Noah one and Noah two, like thing one and thing two from the Doctor Seuss, right? And and then, unbelievably, at some point in the in the treatment, his uh, mother died, dies, and he's. Which then we find out that he actually had a brother. It was not a twin brother; it was a brother who died. And before he was born, and that his parents never told him about. And in fact, he was named after that brother. And so that is what, that's the first uh, narrative that I, um, that I wrote. And that's how this book started, actually. So let's get into that, the idea of intergenerational trauma then, since, since it's not what you intended to write about it, but it, it, it solicits, it, it, solicits, it found you and, and, and found its way into a book. I mean, to, to work with Noah's case, once you and he 
discovered this. And and I recall he he was the one who put it together when he started asking around and gathering information. Did you find that that knowledge helped him? Did it did it did it help him either relieve some of his symptoms? Did it change his life for the for the better? Yeah, you know, I think that part of what we do, right, is is put meaning into our behavior. And that is something that comforts us and, and we understand ourselves, right? Especially in psychoanalysis, our goal is off is often to really know understand ourselves and, and put meaning into our behaviors and those so to speak bizarre behaviors that he had. Suddenly we're not so bizarre, right? They actually made a lot of sense. And so I think that is, you will see that that theme about things we feel and then how do we, what do we do with that? How, and I, I hear you asking about symptoms, about does it make us, I think that your question is also a bigger question, right? And tell me if I'm right. Uh, does it help us to know our intergenerational trauma or those secrets, right? Am I right that this is the question? And I think it always helps because most of us, I, I love this new uh, term that we started using, gaslighting, right? A lot of us, a lot of us grew up with gaslighting, right? With, with the fact that what we feel is either too much or a little bit crazy or a little bit like doesn't make sense. You know, I think many of those stories, you would find that experience of a child that is saying, I don't know, I'm preoccupied with this ideas. I dream at night about, right, about death. And the parents saying, oh, you're so dramatic. You're so, right, you and your bizarre fantasies, right? Uh, when, when you put things together, and a lot of this work of intergenerational trauma is about creating connections, making something, right, putting one and one together. It's about thinking. It's about links, and so when you link things and suddenly past, present, and future, right, are put together, I do think that it helps us feel more coherent in ourselves, understand who we are and where we come from and also where we go. Of course, I want to know, I wonder if a lot of our listeners want to know, how, how do you have a way of understanding how this works? You know, Noah's case how do you how do you explain this uncanny phenomenon that he would have this this uncannily prescient vision of of having a lost uh, a late twin brother like how do you explain that the 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 match between this image and what actually happened when he has no conscious knowledge of it yeah i love this question and i'll tell you why i think as a field we skipped that a little bit, you know? As a field, we all talk about intergenerational transmission as if we know how it happens, right? There is, and every time I, I, I talk about it with clinicians, it is like, we take it for granted that we, under, we know what it means. I think for me, writing to the public actually made me pause exactly there because people who are not clinicians, it's like, what, what are you talking about? I mean, what is it, the magical thing? What are you, right? And even if I say, no, there is unconscious communication, they're like, no, no, I don't understand that concept. What do you mean unconscious communication, right? How does that, and, and uh, I think, and in the book I mentioned the whole field of epigenetics, which is, you know, the understanding that it's biological, 
right? That in some ways that it's in the, the expression of genes, it passes down from generation to generation. I think that in some ways, the field of epigenetics, which is a fascinating field, right? Found a way also to answer that, to, to fill that gap of, all right, all clinicians and people. I, I saw an interview with uh, Rachel Yehuda, who is one of the most important people in that field of epigenetic. And I listened to the interview and she was saying in the interview that uh, she started researching that trauma and the, the transmission from generation to generation because of her, whole, her own history and her own history as a daughter of Holocaust survivors and the feeling that she grew up with, that something is held right in her own mind and body that was related to her parents, right? So she went there and found the answer that I think is a fascinating answer to how does that transmit it. As psychoanalyst, as a psychoanalyst or as psychoanalysts, I think our answer is going to be slightly different, not necessarily that we disagree with our research, uh, but that we also see that a lot of the transmission, uh, transmission is happening in the attachment and through the attachment to another person. That in the, in the parent-child attachment, in the parent-child uh, relationship, I, I would even say baby-parent relationship, right? Uh, that the child is, is, and the parents are so connected and it doesn't, it's not about love, you know, and it's not about if it's a good attachment or a, a secure attachment or not. Any attachment carries within it, right, um, unconscious communication and signals that child and parent are, are communicating with each other. And that the child really, really knows a lot, a lot of things about the parents that the parents doesn't have to tell them about. I'm associating to a patient who, whose name I'm not, I'm not recalling now, who felt like he never belonged anywhere. He was never wanted anywhere. He, and, and he ends up finding out that he was not expected. I think he was a fifth child out of, and, and you know, and, and you talk about how that plays out in the transference and, and how he manages, um, not uh, manages the fear that you might forget him. But but I but I'm thinking, as per what you're saying, there must have been some way that the that the parents interacted with him, and maybe maybe the older siblings too. That without saying it in words, conveyed you you don't belong, you weren't planned for, we're not sure we wanted you, you're not really part of this family. And it's just amazing to think that's, that those messages can be communicated without words. Definitely. I think they're mostly communicated. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't know. You know what? I'm not sure if they're mostly. There are some families where it is communicated in actual words, sure. right? But to me, you know, in some paradoxical ways, those cases are easier, you know, because it's all on the surface, right? If somebody comes in to you as a, as a therapist, as an analyst, and says, my mother told me that she didn't want me, so you have words for the trauma, and you could process it, and, you could, and of course, it's complicated and painful, and, and there are there so many layers of reality into that statement. But I think that when, when that is not even, when that was not actually communicated, 
again, going back to the child's mind is attacked, right? You feel something, but nobody will ever admit, right? So that chapter that you were um, referring to is called Unwelcome Babies, which is, of course, a reference to Ferenczi's article about the unwelcome baby and their um, uh, death wish. Um, um, I might not reference the name Exactly. As you notice, I'm not good. I'm not good with titles. <laughs> I don't remember them. Uh, but that was, a, of course, a very famous Ferenczi's uh, um, paper. Uh, the understanding, and I mean, that is one of the secrets. That's that chapter is about that secret, the secret, the secrets of infancy. That's the that's the focus of that. A lot of things happen to us as infants that we will never ever know unless there is a witness to it that could communicate it with us, that we were, that anything, right? Anything could have happened in our infancy that we will not know. And, and that specific chapter is about that baby who was, to begin with, an unwelcome baby. And then his sister dies when he is a baby. So he's born and he's not a planned pregnancy and his sister, di- his sister dies in a bike accident, his oldest sister, who was the only girl in the family. And the mother becomes really depressed and there is the fantasy that the wrong child died, right? Because one of them was not welcomed and, and, and he's saying, um, my parents wanted only four children. They ended up having only four children, but it's not the, it's not the four children they wanted, right? So there is a whole, the whole chapter is really about him trying to, that he's, he, the way he dealt with it as a child, of course, unconsciously, was to try to not exist. And so he comes to therapy as, as a patient who has no story. And part of what we have to do is to create a story. And of course, like many of our patients, there is always the fear that the story you create would be false, that you make up some imaginary story about, right, about your parents, and especially if the story includes pain or the understanding in that case that, that he felt rejected. So that is a very painful story to write, and maybe it's better for some of us to not, try not to write it, right? You know, I'm, I'm thinking that what makes this especially complicated in certain situations is that it's not like it's not often it's not always the case that the the adults the parents or the grandparents are are conscious of holding a secret that the child doesn't know about Some, sometimes the older generations are not aware of what's being passed down as well um there was a particular there's an excerpt that i want to share from the book on page 70 um where you share what your patient's grandmother said about her own childhood sexual trauma, the grandmother's, um, what she said about it to your patient. And your patient expressed a sympathy to her grandma about how she had kept, she had to keep the sexual abuse secret for so long. And her grandma responds, quote, I didn't keep a secret. It was something I didn't always remember. The secret kept itself. And that last line for me is one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of how trauma lives in the mind as a secret that keeps itself. Um, h- how do you understand what the grandmother is, is saying there? Like, how do you understand how it is that she comes to not know that she's keeping this secret? You know, there is a lot in the book about secrets that are, that are kept, right? They're keeping themselves. 
I think some of it as an, as an outsider's, right, as a th- or as therapist is about, if you intellectualize it, is about defense mechanism, right? It's about repression. It's about what, what does it mean? It's been trivializing things, right? Thinking that something, yeah, we know that something happened, but we, it's the unthought known, right? The ballast idea. We know that something happened, but we don't, but we, it is dissociated or it's repressed or it, and in the book, there are a few situations like that. I want to start with what you're saying about that sexual abuse chapter. It's, uh, it's a very special chapter for me because that chapter uh, is really focused on the unique ways in which sexual abuse is transmitted from generation to generation. Uh, which I find that there, there is a unique way that is related to sexual abuse, which is about and, and the transmission, but also to sexual abuse as a trauma, right? That, and, and, the, and the question, did it really happen? The whole idea of confusion, right? The confusion of tongues, if we go back to Ferenczi here. Did it happen? Did it not happen? Exactly. The whole idea, I'm talking there about memory, right? And the, whole, and the Freudian idea of Nachtraglichkeit, the afterwardness. How do we hold memory? And what do we transmit to the next generation about the confusion of what's dangerous and what's not dangerous, about the over, original overwhelm that is evoked in the next generation? So that chapter is really very specifically about sexual abuse, which I think, but I think you're right that secrets keep themselves not only when it's secrets of sexual abuse, there is another chapter that, that I'm thinking about now where I describe the ways I don't remember my, my history. And it is a chapter that talks about a patient who comes in and she have, she have lost her brother. And my own mother lost her brother when she was uh, 10 years old. And in the chapter, I'm really talking about how I know that, right? It's a fact. It's not a secret in our family. Yeah, everybody knew that. We always, we always knew about my mother's brother. Uh, but when my patient comes in and talks about her dead brother, I wrote, I write there at some point in the chapter, like, I am so devastated by that, as if I've never heard a story like that. This is the most, the most painful story I ever heard, right? Because in that moment, I do not remember. And I don't remember that. And only later on, as the treatment develops, I realize that I'm actually treating my own mother. That this, right, that this patient is my mother who lost her brother. And the complicated position, but also what it does to the treatment. And definitely from a relational perspective, what happens when our traumas are Right, are close to our patients' traumas, and how did that work, and, and all the complications of that. Well, how did that work for you in this case? I mean, how once you put that together, how did that affect the way that you worked with her? How did it, how did it affect the way you felt working with her, the way you felt seeing her? You know, I think that that was, in fact, you know, not all of our treatments are beautiful, even even if, if we, we choose to write about the beautiful ones that we usually, uh, but that was a specifically beautiful, um, beautiful treatment, uh, where I think there was something about my 
family history and the way it was held in my mind in some kind of isolated place for a very long time in that treatment that um, probably allowed both of us to think together and also cry together. And what I describe in that chapter is the experience of being frozen, how the trauma, especially of losing a sibling, is something that keeps you frozen in time. And she comes to me as a little girl. And I also describe my mother, how she, when she talks about her brother, she's, she becomes a little girl, right? She becomes 10-year-old. Year, 10 I describe in the chapter how when my mother hears uh, somebody whistles on the street, she says, oh, my brother used to whistle, and he had the loudest whistles. And I, I always remember from my childhood, my mother talks about her brother's whistles because he was 14, and he was like a little man, and she admired him. And this patient admired her brother. And I think... For years of, of working together, I at the, the first phase was that I didn't even remember. At some point, I actually did make the connection, but I did not disclose it. So there was me know at some point starting to make the connections, my own connections, helping her make her connections, but she didn't know about my family experience. Only years later, when I wrote this chapter... And I asked her permission. I asked all my patients for permission to publish these stories. Uh, she read the story. So that was the first time she learned about my, my family, oh. which was another round of the therapy, right? There is another, we, we do another, uh, you know, another round of, of analyzing something. And you know, it was interesting. And that's not in the chapter. I'm telling you that it was interesting to see that she wasn't surprised at all. Right? It's not that she thought about it or knew it, but she wasn't consciously. surprised. Consciously, exactly. Exactly. And I think that she wasn't surprised because the feeling was that I knew, I knew her from inside. In the same ways, we're talking about attachment that I know and knew my mother from inside. And so, and interestingly... One thing she asked me is to permit permission to show her parents that chapter, uh, which was very moving for me. And very the whole process was like making links and making connections and, and helping her be more, uh, right, understand herself and for her parents to understand her experience. Because I think in, in the aftermath of such a tragedy in a family, everybody is, uh, everybody falls apart, right? Yeah. You know, you've been very open um, about your own loss, uh, the loss of Lou and, and some of your earlier losses, which I, th I think this book is about, not just trauma, but, but about loss. Um, do you care to speak about how, how that loss, which, which is somewhat more recent, how is that shaping the way that, that you're thinking about trauma? How, how did it shape the way that you wrote this book? You know, first of all, this trauma changed my life in a profound way. You know, I, I have never experienced a trauma like that. And I think that it's not only about death, it's also about illness. You know, we struggled with Lou's illness for many years. And I think I was, uh, I think there are things I know today that I didn't know before. And there are feelings that I uh, am in touch with that I didn't have before. And I think the 
the, the book in some ways was my my healing right i was my way to process my loss my way to think about there's a lot of loss in in that book right not only my loss of course but i'm, I'm really talking about about the way we deal with trauma and what it does to our mind and and about love right it's it's not i i mean you read the book it's it's not only a book about about loss it's a it's a book about love and loss mm-hmm. right and there's a lot of love there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of sexuality which is the topics that i'm used to writing and talking about there's a lot of um desire and life and death right thinking about those that those tensions between life and death and how do one survives and what do we do so all of that a lot of it was i mean again this book was written mostly most of it after lose that death so um, it leaks into it even probably in ways that i, I don't fully even know or, or understand yet you know the further along i went in the book the more it started occurring to me at least that there's no such thing as a family that, that doesn't have some kind of story like this of some sort of loss that hasn't been mourned of of a trauma that's been passed down and the more i thought about that the more i started wondering whether any treatment that does not address those parts of one's history is necessarily incomplete um what what do you think that's a good point you know i did hear especially adrian harris was once uh, i heard her saying that uh, in every treatment there are at least three generations uh, which is a, which is a really interesting idea right to to think that when we sit with patients we never actually sit only with the patient and their and their known history right we always sit with everything they don't know and everything that happened to and for the previous generation so i actually really agree with that and i have the experience since finishing writing the book of people reading the book it was that was a very powerful experience so far and the book is not published yet right it's it's going to be published in january january 25th um, of the people that I worked with, the people that uh, that edited it or um, did the, doing the, you know, I, I just recorded the audiobook of the right, the the director and the technician, and every person who is not supposed to have opinions about the book at the end of and at the end of listening to it or, or reading it, saying, oh, you know what, I started thinking about my own history. And of course, teaching, I just taught last week um, a group and I taught that uh, book in Dallas. And uh, I think every person after hearing, after we started talking about it, came back with exactly what you're saying. Every family has a history of trauma. Simply, you know, because everybody loses someone, right? If you think about the most, you know, common trauma we have is lost, right? Um, Illnesses, a lot of people lost parents when they were children and uh, things happened to their siblings or to their, right? But there are a lot of, think about racism is a trauma. So there is racism, there is Holocaust, there is a, 
uh, illegitimate uh, abortions. Uh, I mean, the, and the book is going over a lot of traumas. Some of them are big T traumas. Some of them are small T traumas. But, but I think you're right. I mean, how do we even differentiate between them, right? But how do you handle it when a patient walks in, as, as many might, and you know they're coming in with specific problems going on in their lives present day, and and their urgency is to talk about what's going on in their life, in, in their most immediate circumstances, and they they don't really see what you know they don't really want to quote unquote waste their time talking about their grandparents or about their great grandparents. I mean, how how do you get someone with a very present focused orientation, which is, you know, all of us at different points to be interest to be interested in this kind of backwards exploration. And I don't mean backwards, like regressive, just, just going back in time. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I don't think that you could make anyone being interested in anything. Right. And that it's, it's in some ways, it's not my goal at all. It's more, it's mostly about the way I listen, I think. Uh, and I agree with you that some people will never tell us these stories even when what i often do i do ask for family history it doesn't mean that i'm going to push a patient talk about it i mean even in the book there are cases that that comes up only years into the treatment right i i keep it in the back of my mind sometimes right but in the first first second third uh, uh, sessions i i take some history of did you have any traumas in the family where, where your parents came from what is that right um, and there is a, the chapter i think it's chapter four in the book about the holocaust uh, the, there is a patient who comes to therapy because she's ambivalent about having children and she tells me, as a, by the way, that her grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. Only her grandfather, she has three more grandparents that are not Holocaust survivors. It's irrelevant. It happened more than 70 years ago. It's not right. We don't talk about it for a very long time. Later on, and very slowly, uh, we do, and, and again, I want to say as a bias, you know, as an aside, it, it's not always about the intergenerational, right? But for, in this specific story, we find out that we, we, we start making the connections between her fear of having children and some history of trauma that we don't even know. You know, that's, that's the difficult thing about working yeah. with that. Because you have some sense, but you're not sure. And, and as therapists, we like to know. We love knowing, right? And we really don't like when we don't know things. How do we sit with that which we really have no idea if we're right, if we're wrong, if it happened, if it didn't happen? And, and many times we can't make the connections because they're... You know, these, this, these situations are much more complicated than just making a bang, you know, the moment of, uh, of uh, aha. Uh, in this specific story, I don't want to ruin it for you because there is a surprising, for, you read it, but I don't want to ruin it for the listeners. There is a real surprising end, and that's why I, I chose to tell that story, a really surprising, surprising piece that when we put it together, you suddenly realize that actually the history matches the, rea the present reality exactly. I imagine that you're doing a lot of following your hunches, not really knowing where you're going, whether the road you're going down is going to lead anywhere, but that you, you, you're, you're getting feelings, you're getting hunches. 
yeah, it's like detective work, right? I think I opened the book, I think, by talking about Freud as a as a fan of uh, Sherlock Holmes, thinking about how do we, right? How do can we follow the signs and 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 the, you know, the thing is that sometimes there are there isn't there are no evidence. What do you do in those situations, right? So the good the good scenarios are when there are some evidence and you you have to put them together, and when the patient wants to do that and right so there is a lot of it's really right i think it's a very delicate work of of putting things together and also willing to accept that things take a long time and that and that you put them tentatively first and whatever whatever doesn't match and i think you're nodding so i i see i i understand that you all of us i think analysts know that things that don't that are not right they don't they don't stay you know it's like they fall and then they they're not it's not sustainable to be with something that doesn't feel right it could be it could we can't really create fully false narratives you know what i mean we create something and and we rethink about it again and again and again when we adapt it and adjust it and because we can also never create fully true fully complete narrative so the narrative will, will always be reworked and um you know we're almost out of time and normally at this point i realize i would i would ask my guests you know what are they working on now sort of post post the book but you're still pre-book the book hasn't hasn't come out yet so so what do you most what, what do you have coming up um related to the book you know, it's a really good question because it's it's true that I'm still, the book is not out yet and there's a lot about the book that is going to happen. First of all, on January 15, we have a big book event, uh, virtual, so everybody's welcome to join us from wherever you are. Uh, Lori Gottlieb is going to be there with me. Uh, she's going to open the event with uh, having a conversation mm-hmm. with me. And then I'm going to read... A part of chapter three, which is a, a called Sex, Suicide, and the Riddle of Grief. And I'll read a piece of it. And then Jessica Benjamin, uh, Melanie Suchet, and Steve Kuchak will uh, talk a little bit. These are three people who read the whole book. And they will talk a little bit about that chapter, but generally about the book. And so I think that is, a, that is something in the, in the near future. How, how do people and sign up for that? Uh, so, um, I, you know, maybe in, on my website is the best way that okay. under events, under events on my website, there is a sign up um, link we'll, and you can we'll just... Post, we'll post your website, but can we tell people your web address? It's uh, www.galitatlas.com. Okay, <laughs> and under events, I mean, you will see the book and everywhere you can, uh, you know, whatever you want to know about it. But under event, you will invited and it's a free event and so and everybody's welcome to join us and other than that i'll have a lot of other events for for the public and you know some interviews and things like that sure sure well thank you so much for coming on the show again and and for talking to us and congrats on 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 excellent book i i hope that i hope you enjoy this this time and we would love to have you back with the next book Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thank you. Thank you.